Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Please take your Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3 is where we will be. As has already been hinted at and alluded to this morning, we're remembering today uh, the beginning of the spark of the Protestant Reformation, Uh, something that took place over decades, but generally we hold to the fact that it began on October 31st, the year 1517, at about noon, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door church, uh, castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And from that moment on, God um, sped up this reclamation of the gospel, as we call it. And so we've been looking at these five core principles, five core teachings, five core tenets that come from the Protestant Reformation. Last week we looked at um, the Latin phrase sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, that the Bible alone is our sole sufficiency and sole authority for uh, life and for faith and all of those sorts of things. And so we established and reminded ourselves of a solid footing and solid foundation upon the importance of God's Word, the Bible. Today, I would like us to look at the very heart of the Reformation. Now before we do that, I just want to remind you of a natural law that exists. That natural law exists in in all of creation really, but specifically I want to bring it into the DNA or the functioning of human beings. That natural law is that for every action, there is a cause. Now, that's not to be confused with Newton's third law that says for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. I'm talking about the law of causation. There is a cause for every action that happens in the universe, which means for everything you and I do, whether it be an action, a behavior, a thought, an attitude, there is some sort of driving factor or motivation behind it. Now, sometimes those motivations... And factors are small. And sometimes they're big. Sometimes we're motivated by things like comfort or happiness. Sometimes human beings are motivated by things like survival or preservation. Even at times we're motivated by things like fear. And such factors lead us to act. They lead us to do something, believe something, think something, or the lack of all those things. They lead us to not act. Regardless, everything you and I do can be traced down to a singular cause, external or internal or sometimes both, that drives us to do what we do, say what we say, think what we think, etc., etc., etc. Now that's been true for human beings all across human history. And so as we consider today the Protestant Reformation, we know that that very same natural law was true for the Reformers. 
There was a driving, motivating factor and force in what they did. Now, if we were to consider one individual alone in the Protestant Reformation, let's say the, the whole Reformation centered around one individual, we might be able to say that selfishness or power or pride were the motivating factors. But what about when there's a whole host of people in different locations and even different decades all moving in the same direction what is the singular driving motivating factor of all of these people? Now as we said, Martin Luther often gets all the attention for the Protestant Reformation. Mainly because he's the loudest. But there are a whole bunch of other people that helped Martin Luther. That fought alongside him, went right with him. Some that he never even met nor did they even have the opportunity to me. I wrote down just a few. Here are some. His right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, helped him in the Reformation. Someone he never met, John Calvin. Huldrych Zwingli. John Knox. William Tyndale. There were women as well. Margareta de Navarre. I did say that right. Marie Dentarie, Argula Grumbach, Olympia Maratha, even others decades and centuries before them, John Huss, Miles Coverdale, John Wycliffe. What do we say is the defining driving factor of all of these people that they would push in the same direction against a whole world of opposition? How do we explain their actions? Several of these individuals that I've read even died for what they were espousing. Luther himself lived under the constant threat of death for what he was preaching and what he was doing and what he was confessing. William Tyndale was betrayed by one of his own associates. Subsequently burned at the stake. What's the explanation behind such things? It can only be one thing. The Gospel. The Gospel alone is what drove these men and these women to not only endure under the threat of Death, but to even at times pay the price and give their lives for what they believed. The gospel is what bound these people and their lives together, even though some of them have never met, and even though they lived in different centuries or different decades or different geographical locations. The gospel was the driving factor behind the Protestant Reformation. And so today we say the very heart of what Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Tyndale and all these others stood for, the very heart that you and I stand for is the Gospel. It's the core tenet of the whole Reformation. Many good things came out of this movement. Secular things, theological things, public education, church reform, 
but chief among them all was a burning passion for and a vigorous defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, that's what we come to consider today. The Gospel of our Lord. The very initial spark of the Reformation. And then the sustained flame throughout the Reformation. And then the scorching blaze that the Reformation left that spread across the globe. The saving truth, the saving message, and the saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel may be one big, broad category, but even within that one category, there are several things we can consider out of it. Three, primarily, that we're going to bring out today. These three, well, in Latin, they're called the, the five solas of the Reformation. Sola means uh, alone. S-O-L-A-S. Solas uh, means singular. I want to bring out the three that pertain to the gospel today. And I want to take them in specific order. They might ordinarily be taken in other ways. I think they should be taken in a very specific way, however. They not only help us understand the message of the Gospel, they help us apply the message of the Gospel. And I want to take all three of them out of one text, and that text being Romans chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 22 this morning. We'll read into verse 26. And uncommon for us, I will not hint or hit on every word. Uh, Some parts of this passage will go unaddressed. At the end of verse 22, Paul writes, he says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a general description of this text or maybe some context. In these first three and a half or so chapters of Romans, Paul has been laboring to lay out the guilt of humanity. Not to make people feel guilty, but to expose the reality of their guilt that already existed. And he says humanity is guilty because humanity has broke the law of God. And he says not only that, but it's true for every single person who's ever lived and ever will live. That's his summary statement there in verse 22 and 23. There is no distinction whatsoever. Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, young or old. There's no distinction. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Nobody lives up to the character of God. Not in deed, not in thought, not in motive, not in the core of their nature. Every single person is guilty. 
Now, lest we think this is just a New Testament teaching from Paul, he quotes the Old Testament to make his case in chapter 3. If you look in verses 10 through 18, he quotes in those nine verses nine different Old Testament passages. And that's not just nine different verses from the Old Testament. That's nine different Old Testament passages in verses 10 through 18. Six of them come from the Psalms. Look in verse 10. 10, 11, and 12 might be the summation or summarizing of all that he's saying there. He says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 18. He tells us why that's the case. Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. What's humanity's great problem? We might call it sin, and that's true, but if we boil it down, it comes down to this one singular factor. They have no concern for God whatsoever. And so he's not talking about just those people in verse 18 that are outside he, outside of himself. He's saying this is true for everybody. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't care what God thinks. They don't care what God says. They don't care what God does. They live according to their own agenda, by their own decisions, according to their own feelings of their own heart. And by the way, nobody's righteous. They're not choosing the right thing. They're not doing the right thing. They're not perfect. Now, verse 19, he goes a little, little further. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, which, by the way, he's made the case. Everybody's under the law. The Jews have the written law. The Gentiles have the law put on their heart by God. So he says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, verse 19, so that, for this purpose, so that, Every mouth may be stopped. And listen to this. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Don't miss the importance of what's being said here. Nobody is righteous. Nobody is good. Nobody's good enough to be with God. There is no distinction. It doesn't matter your family heritage, your bank account, your parents, your nationality, your ethnicity. None of that matters. There's no distinction. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All are under the law which exposes sin, reveals sin, shows us what sin is, and thus all are held accountable to God. And that accountability will reveal itself Chapter 2 of Romans. In God's judgment. Look, Just flip your page over if you have to. Romans chapter 2 verse 1. <clears throat> I think it's very important. You see Paul's words here. I think it's very important that you realize as I read this. That Paul's speaking to you. He says, therefore you have... No excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? You know how many people live in that? Live in that thinking? I'll talk my way out of it. My good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. I just won't show up to my court hearing. Do you really suppose you will escape the judgment of God? Oh, don't hide behind your church membership. Don't hide behind your friendship with the pastor. Don't hide behind your upbringing. Don't hide behind your well-behaved kids. Do you really, sitting here this morning, think you won't have to give an account to God? Or, verse 4, do you presume on the riches of His kindness? Do you presume on His forbearance and His patience, not knowing that, the God, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Verse 5 ought to haunt every one of us, but because of your hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. The Protestant Reformation isn't just some religious movement that we celebrate. If we really believe it is the recapturing of the Gospel, and if we really believe that the wrath of God is real, that we'll all have to stand before Him in judgment and give an account to Him, then what we celebrate today is the faithfulness of God to preserve the Gospel through all sorts of means so that we might hear it, have it, believe it today. You will not escape the judgment of God. This out of sight, out of mind mentality doesn't work. Maybe if I just don't think about God's judgment, I won't have to face it. I won't have to deal with it. Whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, the, right, the righteous judgment of God is coming. And on that day, everything, I mean absolutely everything, will be laid bare before Him. And He will render to each one according to His works. And you and I both know if we're being honest, if there's any sort of reality in our minds whatsoever, we know our works are not good. And on that day, not an ounce of our life will remain hidden. Every secret thought, every secret deed, Every secret desire of your heart will be laid bare under the scorching heat of the light of God's glory. You will not escape, and I will not escape. 
Such things help me agree with the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This has been Paul's argument leading up to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he makes it so universal. Coming down to verse 22, as we read, there's no distinction. We're all sinners. But his labors to establish and expose our guilt are for the very purpose that he writes in verse 24. We are not left with just a message about our guilt. We are left with a message of forgiveness. Paul makes this transition into the very thrust of the Gospel in verse 24. So, all are guilty. Here's the major transition in the whole text, the whole letter. There's a a shift taking place. All are guilty. All have fallen short. And yet, there's hope. And this is the first thing we consider about the Reformation. Now remember last week I told you, you'll not find any of these principles written down in Reformation writings. However, you will find their themes and their principles repeated over and over and over and over again. So the things we're talking about are concise ways that throughout church history we've been able to identify the main thrust of the teaching of the Reformation. And the first one is grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. So again, Paul's been building up, establishing the universal reality of everybody's guilt. And then he makes this transition in verse 24 with this very simple conjunction word, and. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift. How do we face God's judgment? How do we deal with giving an account to a holy, pure, righteous God? What is the solution to our greatest problem, which is sin? The answer is clear. The answer is resounding. It is grace. Grace is our only hope, church. As Paul explicitly says here in verse 24, justification by His grace. Now Paul's not making a universalist statement. He's not saying everybody is justified. There's a difference between justification secured and justification offered. This is an offer of justification. Just as it's true that every person is sinful, so it is also true that everybody could be, may be justified in the same way. In other words, he's saying there's only one way to have your sin dealt with. And it's the same way for everybody. Not that it's true of everybody, but it's the only path for everybody. And it's the path of grace. Now he uses this word that I think is worth... um, Explaining or defining is the word justified. What does justification mean? What does the word justified mean? Let me tell you, it's a legal term 
It's a legal term that's to be used in the setting of a courtroom. It's a declared status before God. So I want to make the distinction that justification isn't so much an act or a work as it is a declared legal right, a declared legal status. I don't regard it so much as in terms of, of relationship as I do see it as a paving the path to relationship. So justification, let me try to say that better, doesn't lead to relationship with God so much as, as it paves the path to relationship with God. Now I'm down on a very minuscule scale here trying to split some hairs. So bear with me. Justification is this legal term, a voiced, declared status before God by which the removal of guilt takes place and the establishment of right legal standing before God takes place. The judge, in other words, has rendered a verdict and that verdict upon you and I Guilty though we are, is that our guilt is now absolved. So justification is the removal of guilt, and thus the punishment for that guilt, or the wrath. But it's not the removal of guilt in the sense of a contractual agreement. So justification has a unique emphasis upon it. It's not as if we've signed a contract with God in which there's an agreement between He and I, he the judge and me myself, if you do this, then I'll do that. Or if you spend so many years on probation, then I'll abdicate your sentence. There's not a contractual agreement between God and I. When God justifies, when He removes guilt, He doesn't therefore then require me to carry out so much of my sentence to prove my worth. He justifies and removes guilt based purely out of grace. So that's the definition of Christian justification. This legal standing before God by which our guilt is removed and thus our punishment is rendered obsolete not because we've made and reached a plea agreement with God but because He is gracious to us. That's an important distinction. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. You're not holding up your end of the agreement. In fact, you've already broken whatever contract may have existed. Your justification isn't based on your effort to keep up your end. It's based purely out of the grace of God. Why does Paul define this justification as grace? Because... I'm not going to answer it for you. I'm just going to show you. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says we're justified by faith. What's the difference? Well, trusting that you're all good Bible students, I'm not going to give you the answer. I'll leave you with that question. But there is a, there's a difference here. So why in, in chapter 3 is he defining justification as something that comes by grace? When in chapter 5 he says it's something comes by faith. Well, here's three reasons that I think. First, 
to understand why he defines justification as an act of grace in chapter 3, you need to understand that God has the full right to punish sinners. Please, please hear me clearly. He is under no obligation to forgive. None whatsoever. He would still be holy. He would still be just. He would still be righteous if He punished every wrongdoer. You know, sometimes we get confused when we think about an eternity of punishment or an eternity of hell. And from our earthly human perspective, we think that doesn't seem fair. But don't you realize that if God sends somebody to eternal punishment, which He already has, He is no less righteous for doing so, but still perfectly and completely right in doing so. God performs no unrighteousness. That includes the punishing of sinners. So first understand, God has full prerogative to punish. It's not wrong for Him to do so. He's perfectly right and perfectly just in doing it. Second, you need to understand you and I bring absolutely nothing to the table. We make no offer to God. We have nothing to persuade God. Nothing to ask God for His help. We have nothing to contribute to the work of God. Nothing to remove our own guilt. In fact, everything we do actually adds to our guilt. It's not as if God looks at you and thinks, I need His skills or her abilities or their bank account or their assets or their networking. You bring nothing to the table. God is not in need of anything that we could entice Him with. And furthermore, we are so corrupted by sin, often far more than we would ever realize, that anything we would offer would be nothing more than trash. So first, God has the full right to punish. Second, we bring nothing to the table. This is why I think Paul, this third reason is why I think Paul defines justification as grace. Because that then must mean that if God forgives, if God removes guilt, He must act out of pure love and grace. What else explains it? He doesn't have to forgive. And you don't entice Him to. You don't have anything to bring. And yet He does it. He removes guilt all the time. He, he sustains us in our guiltless state. And He is saving sinners every single day. Continuing to remove guilt. And remove guilt. And justify. And justify. And justify. And why does He do it if not for pure love and Pure grace. Thus, Paul will write in chapter 3 and says, we are justified by His grace. And he adds on, he tacks on at the end of this verse, or the end of this statement, as a gift. Just to remind you and I, we haven't earned God's grace. And His grace isn't a worthy reward for a job well done. And His grace is a pure gift. 
Let me let me pause lest lest we we get off here and and think just solely about the negative of ourselves, which I don't want you to miss. But I also want you to realize the extravagant goodness and kindness of God to save us. When we don't add to his glory and we don't add to his worship, we don't add to his goodness. We don't add to his graciousness or his mercy or his compassion. God is not more compassionate because he saved you. God is not more loving because he saved you. And yet he does it anyways. Our God is a great God. Our God is a loving God. Our God is a good saving God who looks upon guilty sinners and says the only way to deal with their sin and to remove their guilt is if I act and so I will act. He justifies us by grace alone as a gift. Secondly, the Latin phrase for this element of the Gospel, is solus Christus. It means Christ alone. We are saved by sola gratia. We're saved by grace alone. We're saved by Christ alone. Now there's something that we call uh, in theological discourse uh, the problem of forgiveness. And that doesn't mean that there is actually a legitimate problem per se. It's a way that we communicate the tension that exists in God forgiving sinners. And that's actually a beautiful tension that exists. It exists primarily in the relationship between justice and mercy. If justification were made up of any attributes of God, it would be the attributes of justice and mercy. Now here's the tension. I'll try to move more quickly than what my notes have me doing. God must always be perfectly just. He can be no other. If He were ever in one instance or one moment unjust, He would cease to be a good God, cease to be God at all. He must always be perfectly righteous, perfectly just. Justice, perfect justice, always demands that guilt be dealt with. Always demands that wrongdoing be punished. And that the severity of the punishment match the severity of the crime. Which explains an eternity of punishment when we sin against God. So if perfect justice does not allow God to simply sweep sin under the rug or ignore it or neglect it or look the other way, if perfect justice demands that God act against wrongdoing and He's unable to be unjust or unjust in His actions, then how can He exercise His desire of mercy? How can He forgive? How can He remove guilt without punishing us? The answer is Jesus Christ. If there's a problem of forgiveness, then the solution to that problem 
is our Lord Jesus. God gave His own Son. And God gave His own Son to death. To die for the sins of His people. So that in Christ He might deal with our sin. And then in Christ secure our righteousness. Righteousness that replaces our guilt. We call it the great transaction. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. How does God's perfect justice allow Him to exercise His desire of mercy? It's because His justice was satisfied when He punished Jesus for our sins. Then and only then does He declare us guiltless and righteous instead because Christ has paid our price. Christ has paid our penalty. As He says in Colossians chapter 2, He has nailed our debt, our record of debt, to the cross. Removing its legal demands from us. This is what He's saying in verse 24. We are justified by grace as a gift through... Only, only possible through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now there is a difference here between redemption and justification. Again, I'm on a minuscule scale. But sometimes we confuse these two. We lump them into the same category called salvation. And then we tend to use them interchangeably. They actually have very different meanings. If justification is a declared legal status, redemption is an act. And specifically, it's the act of removal of sin. Not of guilt, but of sin. Maybe even more specifically, it's the removal of us from sin and sin from us. Not that we don't sin, but that we no longer live under the sway and power of sin. We've actually been pulled out of sin. So it's redemption is what makes justification possible. Delivering us both from sin and its consequences. And you might be thinking again, that is too much splitting of hairs. To which I would say, no it is not. For if Christ hasn't first removed the consequence and power of sin, then we would not have a means to be declared guiltless. We would actually still be guilty. Remember, God doesn't just declare us something. He must act. And He's acted in His Son by removing that which made us guilty. Redemption makes justification possible but here also in verse 24 we find redemption is only in Christ Jesus if you're looking for salvation or forgiveness or right standing with God in any other way let me just save you time it's a futile effort 
If you think just by being at church, you'll make God happy. Or it'll be a good credit into your account that I'll one day hopefully outweigh the bad things. It's futile. You're wasting your time. The only option, please hear me clearly, every single one of you, the only option to be right with God is to be saved through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through another person. It doesn't come through the church. It doesn't come through your good acts. It doesn't come through, as I said before, your nationality or your family heritage or your good behavior. And the sole reason is because it's sin that must be dealt with. And we are too corrupted and tainted by sin. Nothing of our own doing can deal with sin. Nothing of our own doing can remove our guilt. Only the death and resurrection of Christ can deal with our sin and our guilt. Before I go further, the blessing though is that God offers to deal with your sin in Christ. We'll talk about how in just a moment. Now, verse 25, Paul tells us very quickly here how, how he applies his justice, his just punishment to Christ so that we can be declared right with him. He put forward his own son, which ought not be lost on us. He initiated salvation, right? He acted for us even when we were, as the Bible says, ungodly. Just flip over one page. Chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't have to turn there. Let me just get there real quick and read it. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. Sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us even when we were ungodly. You've heard me say before, it's worth saying again, ungodly means the opposite of godly. We are the opposite of God, and yet, He shows His love for us and that He would send His Son to die for us even when we're the opposite of Him. So verse 25, God initiates salvation. God sends His Son. And He sends Him specifically, puts Him forward to be a propitiation by His blood. It's a beautiful word. It's a word that means appeasement or satisfaction. So here we see the answer to the problem of forgiveness being explained. God sent His Son to be an appeasement of His wrath and justice. So that on the cross, justice flows in in the form of wrath and punishment and mercy flows out. Christ bears the penalty and the punishment for our sin. Christ drinks the wrath of God upon sin for us. 
Jesus nailed to a sinner's cross in our place to appease the perfect demanding justice of God. That's why he says he's the propitiation by his blood. Because you know what sin requires of you? Death. That's the only wage it has to offer. Your blood is the requirement. But Christ shed His blood for you so that He might appease God's wrath and thus make justification possible. This is what Paul concerns himself with in verse 26. He says, It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that God, He, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Without Christ, God can't be both. He can't be just and the justifier. He can't be just and the remover of guilt. But because of Christ, He is perfectly just in punishing His Son and then perfectly right in removing our guilt. He can be both just and the justifier. But this is only possible through the, the Lord. As plainly as I can say it, your only hope of being right with God is if you turn to Jesus now. If you admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that you've messed it up, whatever it is, if even if it's your whole life, you've messed it up. And you need forgiveness that's beyond you you need Jesus. There's no other path. Well, I must wrap up because it's how we apply this justification and redemption that we've been talking about. That's the third and final point in, in uh, Latin. It's solified. Some might say solifide. It means faith alone. We are saved by grace alone, by Christ alone, by faith alone. How, that's the question, how do we apply this justification and redemption? If Paul's not a universalist here, and he's not saying that everybody's saved, but that this is only the path to salvation, how do we make sure we are on the path? And the answer is in verse 25. All of this, justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, all of this is to be, to be received by faith. Let me just give you a few final comments here about faith. We've been talking on Wednesday nights about some of these Christian words that we use, and yet they're, they can be challenging to define. Faith is one of them. How do we define faith? And if you've got 100 Baptists, you'll get 150 answers. Faith can be tricky to understand that we know what it is and we use the word. Here's how I want to define it this morning. Faith is the exercising of your belief. Belief is when we look at the person of God and we say we believe Him. And thus we believe His word. He's not lying to us. He's telling us the truth. We believe. That means I have to act on what He says. 
And if I act on what I believe, that means I have to trust Him. So I believe in His promise that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I act. I call upon the name of the Lord. I exercise faith. I put all of my hope in Him. Our belief informs our faith. There may be other worthy definitions, but that's what I want to use this morning. So let's bring it down into this text. What does faith mean in this text? If we cannot work for our salvation, nor if, nor if we don't have to work for our salvation, instead we have to trust Christ. What does that look like? It means we believe what He has done, and so we trust in His work. We believe what He has said, and so we trust in His promise. We believe He actually came down from heaven through the womb of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was buried in a grave, and resurrected to new life on our behalf. I believe that's true. And so I put all my hope in that. That's faith. We also don't just believe His work, we also believe His Word. Again, as I said, it's in Joel 2 and it's in Acts 2 that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I believe that's a promise. And so if that's true, I put all my hope in that. I call upon the name of the Lord and know with the assurance of God's grace that I am saved. The question comes down to, do you have faith? Maybe more specifically, have you placed your faith in Christ? You know, as Paul goes on through Romans, that's going to be his whole argument. Romans chapter 4. That it's not our works. In fact, he says it in verse 20 of chapter 3. Verse 28 of chapter 3. It's not by keeping the law that we're saved. It's not by trying to be perfect that we're saved. It's not by belonging to this group or that group that we're saved. It's only by putting our faith in the gracious work of Christ. The question is, have you? I'm convinced. Just hear me for the last couple of things. That most Christians today are putting, placing their assurance of salvation in all sorts of things, but their faith in Christ. I think they're trusting their Bible knowledge. I think they're trusting their service in the church. I think they're trusting in all the things that they do. You know Jesus warned us of that attitude. The end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Many, He says, will come to Me on that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and do this in Your name and cast out many demons in Your name? And Jesus will say, depart from Me, I never knew You. You know what's telling about the response of those people? They go to the Lord and they say, look what we did, what we did, what we did, what we did. And Jesus says, that's not salvation. <coughs> salvation is trusting in Christ alone and confessing that you are a sinner and He is your Lord and your Savior and my life now belongs to Him. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Or are you trusting in anything else? If by God's grace you sit here today and you know you're not deceived, which is kind of a strange thing, 
But you know you're not deceived. By God's grace, His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. Romans 8. You have assurance by God's kindness. And today is a day we celebrate. Because God in His kindness and in His providence preserved the Gospel. That you and I sit here today assured in the teaching of Scripture that by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, we can be right with God for all eternity. Christian, your response is to rejoice and to keep trusting. Unbeliever, your response is to place your faith in Christ today and be saved. God, we thank You for this Gospel. We thank You that salvation is not of our own doing because we couldn't do it. We thank You that You have acted to save us. Help us to be truly saved. Remove all forms of deception. Help us to genuinely be born again by Your grace, by Your work, by Your mercy. Help us to have saving faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.